The truth is that we human beings are in constant motion and we always struggle to know who we are. Mm -hmm. I need to know who I am. You don't need to know who you are. You need to know who you're becoming. And if you can know who you're becoming, that's when you are empowered. Mm -hmm. The people in your life who try to hold you back, they know who you are. And most of the time we live in a little bit of of an illusion of knowing who we want to be, but we're not that person yet. And that's why a lot of times people push back. You go, Emily, you're not really that person yet. Mm-hmm. It's because you're seeing who you're becoming. And so it's better to go, yeah, I'm not that person yet. It's just who I'm becoming. Yes, and right. my identity is in who I'm becoming, not who I am or who I was. Hey, it's Emily here. You know that uniqueness you have? I call it the it factor. We all have it, but some of us either really need to identify it or start to empower it. This show is all about giving you the lessons, tools, and principles I've learned after building a nine-figure sales organization, training leaders around the globe, and working alongside of some of the most influential people in this world. So now it's time to de-plug from your outside world and plug in to your new world here. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the It Factor show. Today is a very, very, very special episode for me. I always speak about mentors, and sometimes you have them direct in your life, and sometimes they're from afar. And as I was preparing for this interview today, I was in a state of deep gratitude. As I look at my life and my journey This man I'm about to interview has deeply impacted me on so many different ways. Erwin McManus is a life architect. He's a leading influence in not only the pastor world, but in the thought leader world. He is a true innovator, a creative. He has challenged my thinking and the thinking of millions of people. He's sold millions of books. He's in fact got a new one coming out called Mind Shift that you must read, and he is here today with me. Thank you for being here. Emily, I'm so excited about being here with you. I'm so excited. I got to tell you, like straight up, I got to tell you a story. Is that okay? All right, sure. Go ahead. Okay. So I moved to Santa Monica about eight years ago and from Minnesota, and in that time, I was really struggling with identity, around a lot of shame. I was going through a transition, a divorce at a very young age. And I was searching for Mm. meaning and just, I just needed Mm. to heal. And I needed God, but I was so repulsed because I grew up in like a lot of rules, right? Mm. Catholic background, all the things. And so I was like, I need God, but I don't want God, all this stuff. And I had remembered there's this guy named Erwin McManus. And the reason I remembered you is because when I did extremely well in business at a young age, I got put on stage. And this guy was like, you need to learn how to communicate. I'm going to send you all these YouTube videos. This is when I'm like 24 years old, sending me Erwin McManus videos when I'm living in Minnesota. And I'm like, this guy is like a freaking genius at communicating. Like just fell in love with your message, your style, all of it. And then when I'm here 
at just freaking, I'm so broken. I'm like, oh my gosh, he has a church here. It's called Mosaic. I'm going to go. And I went and I, and I went at my lowest to low and I felt for the first time understood. I felt welcomed. I felt like it was cool to pursue your faith. And from that moment on, I have been a student of yours. I've consumed your content. I don't consume a lot of people's content. And I just want to thank you for this because the way that you operate and you reach people that I believe aren't being reached. And that was me. And it has, it has, um, it's impacted my whole life, mm. truly. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I love that. How the heck? And I've been watching you, and you're like a rocket. Thank you. I mean, you just—it just seems like you just keep breaking atmospheres and growing and having such a huge impact. And it feels like as you've become comfortable with who you are, mm -hmm. you've grown in your influence and impact on the lives of others, which is really beautiful. Thank you. And I learned a lot of this from from you and your teaching, and and you challenge people. You've challenged me in a lot of ways. And I first want to get into a lot of people listen to this that are entrepreneurs, they want to brand themselves. Mm -hmm. You're a master at, at speaking and communicating, you know, what, how did you like, come up with mosaic, first of all, like, because it's different than any place I've ever been. It is different. <laughs> and it's unexpected. And it's changed over the decades. So it's even different now than it has been in the past. And, and but really the beginning for me in designing Mosaic, and I feel like Mosaic started when I began in this nightclub in downtown LA that was owned by Prince, it was the old Glam Slam. And it was a completely counterintuitive kind of space. There were no churches in the world that were meeting in nightclubs or anything like that. No one had really done that before. And, and not only that, it was an active nightclub. It was still the dingiest, darkest, seediest. Uh club in LA and uh and so we would walk in there on Sunday mornings and there'd be hypodermic needles everywhere and condoms everywhere and mattresses thrown on stages on the floors and the bathrooms would be overflowing and it was just as nasty as a place could be and we would all go in there and we'd call it a double glove experience and just put double rubber gloves on clean that place up and and then create this space and I created it because I think for two reasons. One, I never felt like I belonged inside of a faith experience. And so here I am becoming a follower of Jesus as an adult, and church felt incredibly irrelevant right. and inauthentic and disconnected to yeah. me. And so one part of it was, could I create a place where I felt like I belonged? And the other side of it is, my friends were just never going to go to any church I'd ever visited. And even if I felt like the people were sincere and authentic and, and the message was meaningful and important, they were just not going to do it. It was just mm -hmm. too huge of an obstacle for them to go into anything that looked like organized religion. So I created a space for my friends who were atheists and agnostics and uh, Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims. And you know, for a season, Mosaic was about 70-80% Asian because we had so many people who were Japanese coming and then Chinese. And, and, and they were Chinese atheists and Japanese uh, mystics. And, and, and so we were reaching people that no one else was reaching in That's the world. Right. Very, very different kind of space. And, and just the decision I made, you know, 
35 years ago to take the name church off of it, to not call it a church, right. to just name it Mosaic. And so that immediately made a suspect to everyone who is a Christian. Wait a minute, why aren't you calling yourself a church? Are you ashamed of the church? Kind of. And, uh, you know, I was a little embarrassed and by what people knew of as church. And I didn't feel like it reflected who Jesus was very well. And I also said, look, when I walk around, I don't wear a shirt that says Irwin the human. I'm, you know, I'm Irwin, and you recognize I'm human by my essence. If you have to add church to it, is it really? And I said, look, we'll, we're going to be mosaic, and we'll let people decide what we are. Mm. And, and so people who were Christians didn't come to mosaic. It was all of my friends who were not. And we used to do these events with Q's and A's, and I would have bodyguards at the doors, and if you're a Christian, you were not allowed in. And it was only people who were um, atheists and agnostics and, you know, mystics and spiritual and Muslims and Hindus and whatever else. If you were searching, then you were allowed in. And I wanted to keep the space pure. I wanted it to be a place for people who genuinely were on a search for God. And that's how Mosaic was born. And, and even the art form of a mosaic is a, an art form of broken and fragmented pieces that create something beautiful when light strikes through it. I wanted to say, you know, we as human beings are broken and fragmented, and yet we can become something beautiful when light strikes through us. That's right. So even the metaphor of the name was really intentional. That is so beautiful. And it makes sense. Now it all makes sense of why I leaned in mm -hmm. and I didn't feel repulsed. And it actually was a place, it's so, uh, it is truly, it's so emotional for me because that's where I really felt broken open. Mm -hmm. And you're the vessel and the messenger, right? You're like, in, in, you know, from, and then MSC. Right? I don't know. I think you're the messenger. You're the it, vessel. Oh, but it was just like, <laughs> you met me. Yeah. And I think, I believe I heard you say this once, like, in order to reach new people, you have to speak to them in a language they understand. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I have stuck that with me in, even in what I'm doing now, mm -hmm. my heart is to reach that lost girl in LA that mm -hmm. just doesn't know what to mm -hmm. do. And she's, you know, doing things late at night that is soul sucking and things like mm -hmm. that. And, and I had that modeled to me from you. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I really, uh, something impacted me. I was listening to one of your mind shift podcasts mm -hmm. the other week, and you, you said something that deeply impacted me. Like you got some DM from some hater yeah. and it's, I just was like, I was in the kitchen listening and I'm like, I'm <laughs> Like this, what this woman? What are you doing with your life? How, what are you doing to change people? But yet she had criticism, and I think of how much criticism you've had, and and then I think back to Jesus, and I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> like, how do you? What do you do with all that, Erwin? Yeah, you know, I would I would say the different stages of my life, I handled it differently. Yeah, you, you know, um, if you can do anything meaningful with your life you're going to get a huge amount of criticism. And one of the ironic things is that one of the characteristics of highly successful people is they don't really care about criticism. But that isn't me. I actually am impacted by the criticism. I actually feel it. I wish I was more numb me too. to the criticism of other yeah. people. I wish I was a little bit more of a narcissist. <laughs> totally. <laughs> or even a sociopath where I didn't feel <laughs> any of that emotional yeah. you know, volatility, but I feel it all. And... And it, it has like had an impact on me, but one of the things I had to do is decide 
one, to never become so unteachable that you cannot learn from your enemies. Mm-hmm. And so when people would criticize me, I'd always just try to absorb it and go, what can I learn from this? How can I become a better human being? Mm-hmm. Uh, what truth is in that criticism that I don't like to hear? Mm. And how do I grow and change? And whenever you can grow when someone is against you, um, it actually is more frustrating to them. Yep. <laughs> because they, they, they were not criticizing you so you could grow. Mm-hmm. They were trying to make you less. And when you take it and grow from it, you become more. That's right. And so you can actually make your enemy your friend. Uh, they, they don't befriend you, but you actually befriend them by mm-hmm. absorbing it and growing from it. And then the other thing is just letting things go and realizing that most people, their criticism is a reflection of what they're going through, not what you're going through. Yeah. One of the, I think the biggest challenges for me is that because I had such a public life, it impacted my son Aaron and my daughter mm-hmm. Mariah. And, and you, you know them. And yeah. you know Aaron's 35, Mariah's 31 right now. And, um, and I, for Aaron, it was tougher. Mm-hmm. When Mariah was growing up, it was still challenging, but I was a little, I had more people who liked me, you know, in, in that mm-hmm. phase of her life. When Aaron was going through his stages, I had more people who didn't like me because mm-hmm. I was really innovating and pioneering and creating, and I was incredibly unorthodox and, uh, and pretty much alone. And so he grew up in a world where there was just no one for us. Mm-hmm. And that was, I, I think, a, um, a really difficult experience. And then to have, the weight of a small amount of fame on him. Any mistake he ever made, people wanted to highlight. Ugh. Anything he ever did wrong, people wanted to, you know, to um, to magnify it. Right. And he, and one of the reasons, you know, he just decided to go full on into the business space was he he didn't want one um, to give people the opportunity to criticize him because quote he's a pastor or something like that. Mm-hmm. And two, he didn't want to do anything to ever embarrass us or or um, to hurt us in any way. And, um, and, and, and I love the fact that the reality is in the business space, you're going to get criticized anyway. Too. There is no space There's no you space. can go where there. you don't get critique. Right. But I think one of the differences is that, um, like for me, I wasn't just representing me. I was trying to represent Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it really weighed heavy on me because I'm actually really sincere in yeah. my faith. Yeah. And, and I would never have wanted to do anything that would disrespect or dishonor like his name and and mm-hmm. um but on top of that i've never had a life that was conventional no and uh and i i spent a lot of my energy trying to fit in in life mm-hmm. and, and i remember one time like 30 years ago in this meeting somebody asked me um what techniques do you use to think outside of the box and i said no you understand i use techniques to think inside of the box like I naturally think outside of the box, yeah. but I want to fit in. Uh-huh. You know, I actually wanted to be loved and wanted to be accepted. So I would have to work really hard to think the way everyone else thinks. Right. And it took me a long time to get to a place where I realized, oh, wow, that makes me who I'm not. Exactly. And I just need to be who I am and let the chips fall where they may. And, and, yeah. and your your mind and the way that you have been gifted is your superpower. Like that is your it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what makes anybody from a, a billionaire to a thought leader, to an atheist, to a Christian mm-hmm. go lean in and go, Oh, let me rethink that. Like every time I listen to you or read your books, it's like, I have to rethink that. I have to highlight pretty much every page of the book. It, <laughs> it chal- you, you challenge people's thinking. And, you know, yes, it's, it's freaking awesome. But the thing, 
that I want to know is when did you come to that point where you're like, this is my superpower? Yeah, I think that if you use like the um, the hero's kind of story, uh-huh. I actually think for most people, their superpower is their curse. And until they own who they are, they carry it as a curse so they can become the villain. And, you know, and so I think the same powers that are in the hero and the villain um, manifest themselves differently based on your identity. Mm. You know, if you live your life as a victim, if you live your life feeling that um, uh, everything is always against you and everyone's against you, yeah. then you become, the world becomes your enemy. Right. Y- you know? Right. And, and I think one of the interesting things for me is I never, um, I, I never thought the same. I always thought differently, even as a child. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, I have this um, process called the seven frequencies of communication, mm-hmm. and I identify the seven dominant human frequencies. And I remember Aaron was asking me, because my frequency is a frequency called Maven, and it's a, it's a more rare frequency. It's a frequency that's violating people's views of reality. And he asked me, I thought, a really important question. I didn't know the answer at first. He said, were you always a Maven, or did you grow into a Maven? And at first I thought, well, I must have grown into a maven because right. you can't just be a maven. As a kid, then I started remembering back and I realized, oh no, that's why I was in a psychiatric chair by the time I was 10 years old. I mean, that's why um, I felt like I had lost my mind. That's why my family didn't know what to do with me was because I always thought this way. But it was a curse, not a superpower mm. when I was young. Mm-hmm. And then as I became more comfortable with um, who I was and understood that every human being is unique and that we all have something really special to contribute to the world. And if we own it, then we have our power. Mm. And and I, for me, it was, I began discovering it before I became a person of faith. Okay. And you know, I, I read every mythology book in the library by the time I was in sixth grade. So superheroes are really important to me. Uh-huh. And I collected all of the Marvel and DC probably from the age of five or six. So I would look at mythologies and go, I think that these are not reflections of gods. I think these are reflections of us. And that all these superheroes are like shadows of human superpowers. Wow. And so I began looking for my superpower really early in life. And I realized, oh, my superpower was to see the world differently. My superpower was to solve problems. My superpower was I could see inside of people. And even as a kid, I would say, that I could see human emotions the way other people see furniture. Mm-hmm. And I would be shocked that other people couldn't feel what was happening in the room. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was 11 or 12 years old going, can't you feel what's going on? Uh-huh. And, and no one could mm-hmm. or no one would. Mm-hmm. And so I realized a lot of my superpower was empathy because I actually think empathy is the highest form of intelligence. Absolutely. And yeah. when you can understand what's going on inside of people, it's, it's to me, it's... It's a greater genius than understanding physics. I believe that. And, and I've, I've heard you speak of this, and I can feel that you can feel. I feel to the point of life is a lot sometimes. It's a lot. Like I'll go speak on stage, mm-hmm. and then I'm like, I got to go. You know, <laughs> it, it's a lot. It's, it's, it is such a gift to feel and I know you feel on a whole different level like it's a true gift but I wonder for someone like you who I mean you mentor 
NFL teams, you've done work at the Pentagon, you do business, you, you, you do so much. Like, how do you handle feeling all the time? Like, do you have to go back to the cave to, to, yeah, this is, <laughs> there's a combination of, of, I think two things for me. Uh, one was I have a, a neurological condition where I can't filter out information. And, and so I have, I think what's called slow shutter speed which makes me sound very slow. <laughs> but uh, um, and because I don't have a good sense of chronology, when you have fast shutter speed, your brain actually creates a chronology. You remember what happened 10 minutes ago, an hour ago, two days ago. Right. And I don't have that. And so sometimes I, I have the past and this moment and the future. And I, I don't have last week or last year or five years ago or 10 years okay. ago. It all feels the same to me. Um, and what it also does is all the information in the room comes at me at the same time. And so early in our marriage with Kim and I, she would find me like in a fetal position in the corner of a room trying to stop data from, from crashing into my brain. And it was the same way with emotions. I, when I would be in a room, I could feel the emotions of everyone in the room and it would, it would just be paralyzing for me. And so early on, it felt so crippling, I thought it was gonna kill me. Oh my God. And, and even my kids who have learned how to handle empathy differently than me, uh, they'll say, hey dad, you just, you can't take on all that. You can't take on all those feelings. And, and it would frustrate me like if uh, Mariah was upset with me and she'd be over it 15 minutes later and I'm still feeling it three days later. And, it, it, and she was like, Dad, you just got to let go of things faster. Uh -huh. And I have zero bitterness. Like I don't feel any bitterness toward people. It's the weirdest thing. In fact, my kids will laugh. If someone like deeply hurts me, I forget that they were even a part of the story. Uh -huh. I was in an airport in Istanbul, I think it was, and some guy came up to me and, and started talking to me, and he was a guy that did some horrific things, and he was apologizing yeah, in another country. And he's going on and on about how sorry he was, and please forgive me, and I, and I finally just said, thank you so much, could you tell me your name? <laughs> yeah. And he would tell me his name, I remembered him, and I remembered, of course, he was part of my life. My mind just blocks that out. Maybe that's my defense mechanism. Right. And so I, f I feel no resentment, no bitterness, I just move on from that. Wow. And Because that, that's a level of pain that I just can't carry. Mm. And so I, I, I feel like that's one of my superpowers. I just don't carry resentment or bitterness. That yeah, is a superpower. And, um, but at the same time, if I feel like I've hurt you, I carry that forever. Wow. Yeah. And it, it is hilarious to me sometimes where I will get emails from people 10 years later lining out everything they did wrong and asking for forgiveness. And I didn't remember a single thing until I'm reading it. Yeah. And then when I read it, I remember it all. And, and I can tell you my response is usually the same. I'm so sorry you've carried that for so many years. Mm -hmm. If you had just asked for forgiveness five minutes later, you would have never had to carry it all these years. Wow. And I haven't been carrying it. I forgave yeah. you 10 years ago, and I forgot about it completely. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think a lot of times we do ourselves a disservice by being too proud to ask for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> for know? sure. I got to share something with you. 
One of the greatest keys to my success, especially early on, was that I learned how to become an effective communicator. I learned how to present in front of a room. I learned how to convey a message to people that really made people lean in. And I know that I know if I wouldn't have invested in myself and learned how to effectively communicate, to be honest, we wouldn't even be here right now. So with that being said, how much have you invested in your communication skills? Like if you're really looking to grow your business, you're gonna need to go live. You're gonna probably maybe need to take a stage at some point, or maybe you just wanna like wow the crowd at a wedding that you're in. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is that you learn how to effectively communicate. And throughout the years, I've been asked so many times, can you train me? Can you mentor me on speaking? And now the answer is absolutely freaking yes. I am doing an effective communication masterclass. It's gonna be about three hours long, up to four for those of you that wanna go to a new level. And if you're really looking to unleash your potential as an effective communicator, I am going to teach you how to speak with confidence and convey your ideas, how to become more memorable and stand out with storytelling in your talks, how to present your business opportunity with prestige. Because so let's just face it, you must, especially in today's economy. So this is a special event I'm having it's virtual, anyone in the world can join. You might be thinking, is this even in my budget? How am I gonna make this work? Well, let me tell you, all of this is going to be less than one tank of gas in California, okay? And if you don't know what that is, um, let me just say, it's gonna, the entire masterclass is less than one cup of coffee from your favorite barista, okay? You can't afford not to do it. And so if this is something you're leaning in saying, yes, 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 then register now at itfactorexperience.com, itfactorexperience.com and reserve your seat and I will see you there. Something you talk about a lot is like pride, ego. Yeah. You recently did a thing about t talent. It's not a, a, all yeah. around. If you base your confidence on your talent, it becomes arrogance and it's yes. fragile. Yes, it is. But if you base your confidence on discipline mm -hmm. or character, then it actually has resilience in it and it, it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which makes so much sense to me. And I remember early on when I found you, I was like even five years ago when I started really digging in and I was at a place in business where I thought I was really great. I didn't realize I thought I was really great, but I thought I was great. Mm -hmm. And it's like crushing that, like that, oh, I had this ego. I was, and I'm so glad that I was able to go, no, you're not that great. You're not great at all, actually. Like you're, mm -hmm. you, you need to live your life for people in a different way and, and stop reading your your news clippings, you know? And I have experienced you go from cocky to confident. Yeah, yeah. I've actually felt you change Aww. and grow yeah. and deepen as a person. And I think, honestly, the early stuff, you got to give yourself a pass because yeah. like early on when you don't have experience. You're trying to figure it out. You're just trying to believe yeah. in yourself so yeah. hard. And if yeah. no one else will believe in you, you got to believe in yourself hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. 
And, and so I, I kind of give everyone permission in their 20s just have a little drop of cocky. You yeah. Know? And because it's really just trying to overcome insecurity. Mm-hmm. It is. It, it, that's what it is. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And then yeah. once you're able to work through the insecurity, you don't need the cockiness anymore because mm-hmm. you have a sense of yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I think I'm going to be okay. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm actually going to be good at something. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and then something really deep happens. And I think that's confidence. A hundred percent. And then you, I, I had like an identity shift where mm-hmm. I used to just place my identity on what I accomplished. Mm-hmm. I think that came from being raised by a single mom and my mm-hmm. dad left when I was born. And so I was always searching and trying to achieve to get love right. and to get attention. And when I had success in business, I was like, oh, this is my identity. Right. And then I'm like, no, Emily, it's not your identity. My identity lies in in my relationship with God, mm-hmm. right? And I'd love for you to expand on like identity and what you think of that and, you know. Well, it's interesting. This, uh, we, we, we have a space, Aaron and I, called the arena yes. where we basically create a global mastermind, but online. And this week I talked about how to expand your capacity. And I said, there are three dominant ingredients that help you expand your capacity. And one is mastery. If you get better at something with skills, you increase your capacity. The other one's mindset. If you focus on what I was talking about, mind flow, because um, I, I don't know if I always like the word mindset because it sounds like it's fixed. Not I actually true. love the phrase mind flow because it's about what you're allowing into your mind. And so when you're allowing positive narratives, hope, optimism, love, compassion, generosity to flow through your mind, it actually opens your, your mind. When your mind is flowing with bitterness, fear, doubt, anger, insecurity, um, a need for ego, your, your, your inner world actually decreases in its capacity. Mm-hmm. And, but the third one is identity. And identity actually has a huge influence in your capacity. When you don't believe you, in a sense, deserve to succeed, you won't succeed. Right. When you don't feel you deserve love, you will not find love. When you don't feel that you deserve to be trusted, you won't be trusted. And what's interesting is your own definition of yourself has a huge impact on your capacity for life, not just in business, but in relationships, in love, in intimacy, uh, in, in happiness. If you don't feel you're worthy of happiness, you'll never be happy. That's right. If you don't feel that you're, um, you know, you're worthy of of um, significance, you'll always feel insignificant. Mm-hmm. So your identity is really significant in what you're capable of experiencing in life. Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes what the, what the challenge is is that most of our identities are reflective identities. Our identities are based on what other people think and feel about us. And, and so when your identity is a reflective identity, who you say you are is really who everyone says you are or who you think they say you are, your identity is really fragile mm-hmm. because it's coming from the outside in. When your identity is rooted in, um, it's, uh, well, if you want to make it just fundamental, if your identity is rooted in the fact that you're created in the image of God mm-hmm. and that you are actually m- the idea of God in flesh and blood, yeah. that you are loved and valued without ever doing anything, that you were loved and valued before you took your first breath. And the moment you begin to realize, oh, I start from value. I don't have to work toward value. I start with value. I start with worth. I don't have to build toward worth. I'm starting from there. Yes. And, and there's this 
wonderful thing can happen when I, I kind of, I always start from success. Like I don't work towards success. I start from success. I just, <laughs> I did this event one time in uh, Orange County. I don't know, there were like 10,000 people. And then they had me on a podcast right after. And this was kind of a, I guess it was a big event. Uh-huh. At least they thought it was a huge event. Yeah. And, and in the interview, the guy said, now that you've spoken on this stage, you know, how do you think you're going to deal with success? <laughs> and, uh, and I looked at him and I said, I thought I was successful before I walked on your stage. Ooh. So you're giving me new information. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I said, in fact, when I was working in the inner city and there was 15, 20 people in a room with me and I was making $6,000 a month, I thought it was a success then. Wow. So I didn't have to wait 20 years to speak on your platform to become a success. Yeah. I worked from success, not to success. Wow. That is such a mind shift. And it makes a difference because you're not out there trying to prove that you're worthy of being loved. You're not. And it's such a yeah. different energy. It's such a different frequency. Yeah. And it, it transcends in everything you do, sales, just being, mm-hmm. it's like why, it's like you're trying and trying and trying. It's like you're forcing and forcing instead of flowing and flowing. Wow, this is level 10 unlock. Mm-hmm. This is level 10. Like this is, mm-hmm. and it makes so much sense because when I had that shift, I'm like, I'm already worthy. I'm already joyful. I'm ar- I already have, you know, it's, I don't need to, because that is, the, that's the question everybody always asks, like, Oh, what's, you know, what's next for you? You've hit your pinnacle. <laughs> what the freak does that, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like you, wow. Okay. So with the mind shift, cause I'm having a mind shift and the way you just eloquently explained that talk about mind shift. And by the way, mm-hmm. all your books are incredible. Oh, thank you. Genius of Jesus. Oh my goodness. Um, he writes them himself, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's strange that yeah. we have to say that, right? <laughs> it is actually really strange. Yeah. But I have heard from a few people that this might be one of your most special books yet. Is you know, my true? son Aaron said it's his favorite book of all yeah. the ones I've ever written, and he's read them all. Yeah. And he usually reads them multiple times. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but I love this book. I'm really excited about it. It's in the social psychology space. So if you go to the bookstore, what still exists? Is it Barnes and, Barnes and Noble, Noble yeah. still exists, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, so you'll find it in the business section or you'll find it in the uh, personal development section. You will not find it in the, uh, the Christian section or the faith section or the religion section. And there's a very specific reason for that is I, I wanted to make it accessible to everyone regardless of where they are on a faith journey. So cool. And, and some of it for me was even working with people who do have faith, realizing that they think their faith is supposed to solve all their problems, and mm-hmm. it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it's, if I could put it in a different category, like mm-hmm. there are people who go, all you need to do is believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they get upset with me when I talk to them about how to overcome overthinking or how to have a, a mental shift or how to overcome destructive internal structures. They go, no, all you need is Jesus. And I go, wait a minute. You can believe in Jesus, but if you eat McDonald's every day, you're going to be fat. Exactly. And believe in Jesus. Yeah. Because he's not going to give you good health just because you believe in him. That, yeah. You know, if if you want a washboard stomach, you need more than believing in Jesus. <laughs> you, you're going to have to cut down on yeah. calories yeah. and work out and do a lot of abs and core exercises yep. because it's Jesus and physical exercise. Right. We, we get it in other areas. If you want to be a doctor, you know, if you want to be a surgeon, 
you can't just believe in Jesus. You have to go to medical school mm -hmm. and you have to learn how to operate. I don't want someone operating on my brain just because they believe deeply in Jesus. I want someone who's an expert in brain surgery. Yep. And somehow we can't get this about life, that if you want to become healthy, if you want mental health, mental clarity, mental strength, or mental agility, you need more than, quote, just your faith. Mm -hmm. You need to understand how you're designed, how you're created, and how you work at an optimal level. And so I, I wrote this book because I was just so frustrated with shallow thinking that didn't solve the deep problems in a person's life. Mm. And for most of us, our limitations are internal. And I think I have one page in the book that only says this, the intention of this book is to destroy internal limitations. And this whole book is about destroying the internal limitations that hold you back from becoming the person you're created to be. Mm -hmm. And they're not, they're not cosmic. Uh, yeah. it, it, the, the most important things in life are hard to see, and the moment you see them, they're hard to unsee. Uh -huh. and, and they're the kind of thing where you go, of course, how, how, how did I not know that? And I think the 12 mindsets in this book are like that. Mm. Like once you read it, you'll go, of course, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. This, it doesn't take a genius to know this. That's right. Because it doesn't take a genius to think like one. Mm. But what you do need to do is see it with such clarity and then apply it to your life. Mm. I wrote this book because in 1990, I heard a description about someone that said that they were simply structured for failure. And I realized as I examined their life, it wasn't that they were structured for failure. They were not structured for success. That most of us do not crumble under the weight of failure. Most of us actually crumble under the weight of success. Because we know that we're going to fail. Right. We have strategies for that. Yeah. But we actually don't know that success needs muscles that you build on. Or you will become your own worst enemy moving towards your best life. And, and this makes sense, I, I think, why you see people like go, woo, and then they crash and burn, right. right? Like, I see that all the time. Like, what happened to them? And it's because they didn't have the internal structures that dealt with the weight of success. Oh, my God. So what's one internal structure? <laughs> or should we read the book? No. Um, well, one, every book I write usually has a chapter zero. Uh-huh. Because chapter zero is where I need you to make a fundamental mind shift a new way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And the mind shift that I need everyone to make <clears throat> is that every change they want in their life begins in their mind. Mm. And if they don't make the change in their mind, they will not make the change in their life. Right. If I were gonna identify one mind shift in the book that I could highlight is um, you are your own ceiling. Mm. There's a chapter that talks about how most of us will perceive in life that someone else has stopped us, mm -hmm. that someone else has limited us, that right. something else has stopped us, and, and, or something in our past stopped us. It's because I never knew my dad, or because mm -hmm. my parents were um, not present, or because becomes they went like through a, a divorce. Story. Or, and you become yeah. a victim. Yeah. Or it could be, you know, the reason I don't succeed is the government. Yeah. Or, you know, um, everyone who's looking for policies to help them succeed are actually working from a self-limiting mindset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it would be so easy for me. I'm an immigrant mm -hmm. from El Salvador to say, 
I can't. I, I didn't succeed or achieve my highest level because I'm an immigrant, or because English was my second language, right. or uh, because I never knew my real father, or because I'm the product of multiple divorces, or uh, I could always look to something external mm -hmm. to justify why I underachieve. Mm -hmm. But the moment I understand that I am my own ceiling, I don't have one anymore. Mm. The moment I realize that um, everything I describe externally, that's just the the game. Yeah. Those are just, you know, that's just the, uh, the, uh, the space, the obstacles, the barriers, the boundaries, the challenges. Mm -hmm. But they do not determine my failure or success. Right. They do not determine the limitations of my talent or potential or capacity. Uh, All of that is mine. Yeah. And people love to abdicate responsibility and say, it's your fault. Oh, totally. But here's what they don't realize they're doing. The moment I say, Emily, it's your fault, I'm also saying you're the only one with the power to change it. Mm -hmm. When I don't take responsibility, I actually abdicate power. The moment I say it's my responsibility, I now also say it's also my power yeah. to bring that change. Yes. And it really is true. It may not be your fault, but it's still your responsibility. Totally. And, and the reason I like being responsible is because I love having the power to bring change. Oof. And so the more responsibility I take, the more empowerment I receive. That is spot on. Yeah. It, and I can even, like, I think of this mind shift mm -hmm. I've had in my life. And I, I went from the victim story of raised by a single mom, dad yeah. left. Like, yeah. it, I just wore it, right? And the second I go, no, this happened to, like, for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm independent. I can, you throw me in the middle of the, the street in LA and I, I'll, I'm street smart all day long. I can talk my way through it. I can figure yeah. it out because of it. And I shifted and that's when I saw the ceiling lift, mm -hmm. right? Oh, this is, this is so good. And so um, this book, did you collect stories from people or is it? Is it all my uh, stories are always connected to me. Okay. And the reason for that is I, I'm not a researcher in the sense of I'm trying to research to tell you random stories or yeah. arbitrary stories to validate my point. Mm. If I haven't lived it, I don't write it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So every story usually has a, a intense connection to me in some way or another. Mm -hmm. and, and so even when it's a story of someone else's, because there's a lot of stories of, of my friends, mm -hmm. and but they actually are my friends. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, yeah. I, so, I, so I end up, you know, so I have a friend yeah. who lost $2 billion dollars. And uh, in his company's money, $55 million of his own personally, who had a heart attack and had gone to 270 pounds. And I watched the radical transformation of his life and just walked away with a $4.2 billion settlement. And now is in great health and has saved his marriage mm -hmm. and now has a great family. I do have a friend who started a company and uh, nine, in a nine year soldier for $1.2 billion. Mm -hmm. you know, I have a friend who went to federal prison for five years for seven kilos of cocaine. And uh, as a drug runner, and because he was angry at God because he was about to get married, and right before the wedding, his fiance died of cancer. Oh, wow. And so he thought, okay, God, if this is who you are, then I might as well just go and, you know, live like hell. And, and the first time he ever spoke, he told his story of being in prison for five years, or, um, and then, I guess, seven years total. And after he spoke, it was really powerful. I said, the next time you speak, I don't want you to talk about being in prison because that's not your story. That's just one part of your story. You're not an ex-con. You're not an ex-anything. You're a future something. And that guy became the campus pastor of Mosaic in Mexico, and it grew to 2,000 within just a couple oh, of years. Wow. 
and and he's all tatted up but sometimes he'll wear suits just to cover all the tattoos because his campus now is in the richest street in all of Latin America. It's the Rodeo Drive of Mexico City. Wow. And so it's funny, in the, in the daytime, he'll wear a suit, cover the tats for all the business people. At nighttime, he, uh, he has all the tats out for all the it. hipsters and all yeah. the, you know, <laughs> edge culture. And it's, your worst story is a part of your story, but it's not your story. Mm-hmm. Now, I always tell people, as long as you're a victim in your mind, you're living someone else's story. Mm. As long as you're bitter, you're living someone else's story. And as long as you're carrying any negative emotions, you're actually in someone else's story. And the moment you get back into your story, and that's why forgiveness is so important. The moment you forgive, you're back in your own story. The moment you stop being a victim and you take responsibility for your life, you're back in your story. I don't want to live and die in someone else's story. No. I want to live my story. And I want to live it fully. So beautiful. So freeing and so beautiful. And, and this is, I've heard you say, you, it's, I'm a, I need you to say it better because you always say everything, but, but it's, 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 you're about, it's not who I am today. It's, it's about my future, right? It's, yeah, about, it's about who you're becoming. It's how, about who you're becoming. Yeah, yeah it's funny. I, I, and I, I sure, you've probably heard me share this, but I was driving to San Diego from LA one time and my wife Kim called me and she said, where are you? And I said, I'm moving so I cannot tell you where I am. I can tell you where I was, I can tell you where I'm going, where I'm going, but where I am doesn't exist because I'm in constant motion. And she said, shut up and just tell me where you are. <laughs> you know? But the, the truth is that we human beings are in constant motion and we always struggle to know who we are. Mm-hmm. I need to know who I am. You don't need to know who you are. You no. need to know who you're becoming. Ooh. And if you can know who you're becoming, that's when you are empowered. Mm-hmm. The people in your life who try to hold you back they know who you are. Right. And most of the time we live in a little bit of, a, of an illusion of knowing who we want to be, but we're not that person yet. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of times people push back. You go, Emma, you're not really that person yet. Mm-hmm. And it's because you're seeing who you're becoming. Mm-hmm. And so it's better to go, yeah, I'm not that person yet. It's just who I'm becoming. Yes, and right. my identity is in who I'm becoming, not who I am or who I was. Yes. And, and that for me was so liberating going, because, you know, I mean, I have an alias. I might... I'm not German. I have Irwin. I'm not yeah. Irish. I have McManus. I'm from El Salvador. I never knew my real father. I don't know a lot of my uh, history. And, and so I always struggled with an identity crisis. Right. And I realized I'm never going to solve my identity crisis if I try to figure out who I was or where I came from. Right. And I'm not going to solve it by trying to figure out who I am because I'm always changing. Always. And, and I, I feel like I'm always in flux. Same. I'm always growing and developing and becoming. And so my whole identity is based on who I'm becoming. So beautiful. Oh, so that's so beautiful. I just have to like sit on. It's so, so good. Um, This just dropped into my, my soul. One of your gifts and something you've modeled from a far, far distance from me is your ability to love and connect with all people. And mm-hmm. I, I believe that's who Jesus mm-hmm. was. And whenever people ask me like, who's your biggest role model? Or who do you want, I, who do you want to be like? Or who, what, it's Jesus. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, there's no, there's no person, right? right? But you have done it in such a way, Erwin, like you're put in so many different environments. Mm-hmm. And I believe I know why. 
of course, is to be a light and to minister and to love those people unconditionally. But as I go deeper into my faith, and even I speak about it a lot, you know, I can't shut up about it. I I have people saying certain things, people of influence, like, don't go into that territory and be careful of this and all the things. Right. And And it's like, the truth is all people deserve love. And I have friends from all different religions and all different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I've spoken South Korea. I've done, I do business all over the world. And I'm like, I think in my mind, like I've really, this is something I'm struggling with right now. Do you have any advice on this that you can give me? <laughs> yeah. It's not about being right. It's about being love. Yeah. You, you know, and when you travel the world, you don't win people by trying to be right. Yeah. You know, you win people by trying to love them and mm -hmm. treat them with value and with dignity and respect. And, and I, I think some of it is, I think a lot of people use faith as a way to discount people they just don't like. And I actually really like people. Same. <laughs> and I think too many people only like people who are just like them. Wow. And if you only like people just like you, you only really just like you. And then you like reflections of yourself. And that's about as narcissistic as you can get. Straight up. And so you, you need to look and go, who in my life is different than me that I actually really like? Because that's the best indicator of being a true human is when you love people and enjoy people who are dramatically different than you. And, and, and you know, and, and even in my world, I mean, I spend time with people who are so dramatically different. Right. And sometimes my wife will go, what do you see in that person? Or like, you know, yeah. do you enjoy that? And I go, they're just so different yeah. that I just made their difference what I enjoy. Yeah. You know, and, and there are definitely characteristics I don't like. Right. You know, yeah. it's hard for me to be around people who never listen. Oh, God. You, yeah. you know, or yeah. people who just talk at you and don't talk with you. Yeah. Right. Right. And, but I have some friends like that too. <laughs> but I actually said to them, Hey, do you realize you haven't asked a question in the last yeah. three hours? And they go, and 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 I, people will be shocked to go. How can you tell that person that? I said because I actually value him. And I believe he wants to grow. Yep. And I want him to have other friends besides me. Mm -hmm. And it, and someone else may not say that to him. They just may not hang out with him anymore. Mm -hmm. you, you know. And yeah. and you know. So there's. We had the conversation. My wife and I yesterday. She had um, something in her hair. And I think it was, and she said, why didn't you tell me I had something in my hair? And I said, because when I tell you something like that, you get upset with me as if it's my fault or as if I'm saying you're not enough. So she goes, when? I said, yesterday you had something on your face. You had some food on your face. And I said, honey, you got some food in your cheek and you got upset with me. And you gave me that look and I don't want that look. <laughs> and you have to kind of decide yeah. in life. Yeah. Do you want the friend who doesn't tell you yeah. you have something on your face? Or do you want the friend who does tell you? Yeah. And I think the challenge is most of us say we want the friend who does tell us, but we actually keep the friend who doesn't tell us. Mm -hmm. Yep. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And, you know, and so I, I have one friend who, if I ever make a factual mistake, he tells me. Mm -hmm. And I make factual mistakes all the time. Mm -hmm. Just you're talking. I'm talking yeah. about randomly. Right. Not on stage. I'm right. just talking about everyday life right. even. Right. He goes, no. And he knows every fact. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know how he knows, but he knows. I, I know a lot of facts. I'm strangely knowledgeable about a lot of uh-huh. meaningless things. Uh-huh. But he knows more. And I just decided, oh, when he corrects me, I just write down and I go, oh, I don't want to get this fact wrong mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just kind of take him. He's now my researcher. Yeah, I love it. And instead yeah. of being my critic, he's my researcher. Yeah. And I just get better. I get better and better you, and better at it. You get better because you're humble and you're like, I, I want to learn. I call those my hard love friends. Like I'm like, I'm going to give you some hard love right now. Yeah. You know, and that's what I want in my life. I'm like, please, those yeah. people are like the people I respect the most. Mm-hmm. And it's like we're just sharpening each other all the yeah. time. And I have friends who'll call me up and go, I just saw your Instagram post. Um, this is what you didn't do right. Uh-huh. And. It irritates me. Yeah. And then I change it. Yeah. Same. I get, I'm like, uh, I'm like, I do that all the time with, right. With you know, you, you're yeah. allowed your, yeah. your, your 30 seconds irritation. Yeah. You yeah. know? So, so my, my question is this. So like when you're in the jungle, when you're not, cause this is what a lot of Christians will say, like, be careful, blah, blah. And I understand. Mm-hmm. But when you go into these other worlds, right. And you're friends with all these different people. Is it because you know so deeply who you are and whose you are that you don't you don't get tempted by these other people? You don't get persuaded. Like, do you know what I'm, where I'm going with this? Well, I think if a person is, let's say, living in a lifestyle that I don't agree with, right, or has a belief system I really disagree with, yeah, I never see it as my responsibility to change their mind. Okay. Because I can barely change me. Yeah. I'm not going to take the responsibility of trying to change other people. I can help people who want to change. But I don't need to try to change people Mm -hmm. who don't want to change. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing I assess is whether a person's asking me to help them. Okay. If someone asks me to help them change or help them move into a different way of living their life, I'm happy to help them. Yeah. But... If they're not asking, I'm not offering. Not my job. Mm-hmm. Secondly, if someone is, let's say you're in a space and they're living in a different way, but, but you need to be there, but you don't want to live that way, mm-hmm. I, I, I remind myself that I'm giving them permission to live life their way. Mm-hmm. And so I also need to give myself permission to live life my way. Mm-hmm. And if they try to change the way I live my life, they're not giving me the same respect I'm giving them. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and and so I just you know I try to live in a life of genuine mutual respect. Yeah. You know, and um, and every once in a while I do interject myself. Like I was at this uh, mastermind. You know, everyone was super rich, but mm-hmm. for some reason it was a very young one. Uh-huh. They were almost all under forty years old, and 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 I'm at this dinner table, and there's six guys. And they all looked exactly the same in terms of super jacked, washboard stomachs, yeah. you yeah. know, Instagram ready. And, <laughs> and they were all talking about women like they were trash. Oh. Talking about all the women they have sex with, all the women they were sleeping with. And, and one guy said something about, yeah, you know, you know she's, uh, she's really great in bed, but she, you know, she doesn't have anything in her head or, or, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And, and, and finally, I, I just kind of said, I just wonder if like those women are in a room right now talking about what idiots you guys are. I mean, I wonder if like she's saying uh, he has like a great washboard stomach, but he's an absolute jerk. And I just, and I just start the narrative of what all the women should be saying. 
got really quiet. And so there are moments where I, where I will interject myself when uh -huh. I feel that people are demeaning someone who's not mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And that probably is like one of my lines. Yeah, that's good. You, you know, Oof, that's good. And ironically, they all it was they all very much sheepishly started saying, "Yeah, they probably should be saying that." Uh huh. <laughs> about us and and um and I think I'm more like way with men. Yeah. You know, like uh, when I see men acting like boys or adolescents and they think that wealth gives them permission to treat people like they're just commodities i have almost like zero patience right you know but other than that i think i'm a cooperative uh mm -hmm. well, contributor to life <laughs> I, I think it's like it's, it's just your example right it's how you live it's like you're mm -hmm. so rooted and grounded that it's just you're so strong in who you are where it's like even though you're with someone who thinks different acts different whatever it's like i can't help but want to raise my standards just by being around you like truly you know and 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 then you love people and that's the feeling i got when i went to mosaic mm -hmm. and then just when i started to consume all the content it's like it makes you lean in it doesn't make you mm -hmm. repulsed yeah and that's an art form in 2023. I'll tell you that. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. When did you, when did you find God? Um, have you ever have bought a car and you thought you had the only car and then after you bought it, you saw that car everywhere? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, my G-Wagon. Like, yeah, yeah, your whole perception of everything. Yeah, it's not even cool. It's like the <laughs> minivan of L.A. I think that's the way I feel about God. <laughs> yeah. Like when you say, Where, when did you find God? I'm like... Well, I remember when I became really aware of him, and then after that, I looked backwards and I felt like he was everywhere. Huh. It was like buying that G wagon, all of a sudden you realize they're everywhere. Yeah. And and so I think I, I didn't have a perception of God for twenty years, and um, and then people started having a conversation with me about about faith and about God and about Jesus. And my mom, at the age of forty-two or so, uh, maybe forty, invited Jesus into her life, and so she was an adult calls me up and tells me she's a Christian, I'm in college, and I have no idea what that means, you know, but she'd been through a few divorces and had a really hard life, and, and when she said, I'm a Christian, she sounded happy, so I was happy for her. Right. But I would have been happy if she'd called me and said, I'm a Buddhist, or yeah. I'm a Hindu, or yeah. whatever, I, I, or if she had said, I'm, I joined the Peace Corps, like, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. I just wanted my mom to experience some peace and happiness right? in life, yes. and, and I wasn't against religion, I never had a negative really yeah. experience. I had no experience really, so you know I was neutral. And I was a, a, a deeply spiritual person. I just didn't have a way to connect it to something, you know. I mean, I'm a lot older than you, uh, and but I, if I had lived in this time, I probably would have been a universe guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I would have talked about the universe being for me and everything else, and because that would have made sense to me. Mm -hmm. But um, my mom comes to faith. My brother's an atheist. Starts reading the Bible and visiting church, which I would not do. I was the most resistant. My two younger sisters both started going to church. And so then my whole family comes to faith and I'm thinking that they're getting swallowed up by some kind of cult or alien species. Or, and I remember confronting my brother as an atheist going, what's an atheist do, doing going to church? It's, that makes you like a hypocrite. And he goes, you know, if I become a Christian, it's gonna be an intellectual decision. And I called him out, I said, you're lying. You're just, you just don't want to admit that you're about to fall. So I thought believing in God was like a fall, 
Uh-huh. You know, you're, you're giving up on your intellect, giving up yeah. on your, your will, giving up on yourself. Yeah. And because I didn't have any context. Right. At all. And, and so then I find them all suddenly believing in Jesus, and that made me maybe more resistant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah, know? you're like the rebel kid. I do not. Yeah. I am such a nonconformist. Same. I don't like doing yeah. anything yes. that the crowd is doing. Oh, and gosh. So sometimes I won't do the right thing because the crowd is doing Same. it. Everybody <laughs> goes that way. I go, I'm going to take this way. And then later on, yeah. you're shit. They were right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Should have gone that way. But, you know, so I was very <laughs> resistant. And, um, and I tried multiple things to try to distract myself from even thinking about God. And um, uh, because I think that's what sometimes we do. Mm-hmm. You know, we try to fill the vacuum in our soul with something in life. And I remember fl- I had been dating this girl for two years, and so I flew her down to hang out with me so I could stop thinking about God, literally. And and I remember just sitting on a street corner, and I actually broke down and wept, and she'd never seen me express any emotion. I was very stoic. Yeah. And she didn't know what to do, and she didn't realize what I was actually broken about was I realized that she couldn't fill this vacuum in my life. And I didn't know how to explain that to her, so I put her back on a plane and sent her home. <laughs> and, uh, and because I was trying any last-ditch effort to not have to turn to God, right? And um, but there was just something really missing in my soul, something broken. And um, and so I, you know, I, I I didn't research. I was a philosopher in college. I studied everyone and everything, and I was more thorough with Socrates than I was with Jesus. I was more thorough with Aristotle and with, you know, Descartes than I was with Jesus. What happened with Jesus was just an act of desperation. I just prayed one day and I said, God, if you're out there and I matter, then I'm in. Mm -hmm. And I just said, Jesus, if you're real, could you find some way to make that known to me? Mm -hmm. You know, and... um, it was just one of those, I just threw it into the heavens kind of prayer and had no factual objective proof. You know, how everybody's always trying to prove God, right. and prove science, and prove the Bible. And I'm like, nah, I'm just going to be honest. It was just a desperate act yeah. of someone going, I can't find meaning in life. Mm. Do you happen to have it? You know, and it somehow that moment radicalized my life. And that's why I think I can't unbelieve Mm -hmm. because it wasn't like the proof of the Bible. Mm -hmm. It wasn't someone arguing with me. You know, it it wasn't a a, a scientist, atheist, and a philosopher, theologian having a conversation about God. It was just me asking God to show up in my life and something inside of me changed. And it changed my life forever. So I was 20 years old, and I became a person of faith, and it altered everything in my life. But more than anything, it gave me a sense that my life mattered. Yes. And that, I mean, frankly, like if you just want to use like old school language, like if God was for me, who could stop me? Right. You know, it's I suddenly felt unstoppable. That's how I feel. Even if it was an illusion. Yeah, that's how <laughs> you know? I feel. Yeah. That, you can kill me, but you can't stop me. That's how I feel. And I don't even know if you can kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Never. That's so, that's, so, that's so beautiful. That's how I feel. Yeah. It's like, it must be how you feel on drugs or mm-hmm. all the things that people do. Like, 
that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. And and it's like the wind is at my back. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just like, and there's no ceiling. It's infinite possibilities. And it's like lifts this lid and, oh, jacking me up right now. So beautiful. Yeah. And I just really want that for others because. I know. Yeah. It's, I don't need people to agree with me for me to feel right. Right. I, I don't need me to convert people to my belief systems for me to feel like it's the right, the right belief system. Yeah. I just see a lot of lonely people, a lot of desperate people, mm-hmm. a lot of people struggling with anxiety and stress and depression and a sense of hopelessness. And I feel a deep need to help people find the joy and meaning mm-hmm. and hope and life that I found. Mm-hmm. And, and that for me is motivating. That is so motivating. Yeah. But by the way, you know, you're in the business space, and I had this thought, like for 10 years, I worked with the, the urban poor. My wife has worked with impoverished people around the world for decades. Yeah. She built a school in Malawi she during does. the pandemic, yeah. and one of the most impoverished areas of all of Africa. And, and a lot of times you, you, you get this, you go, you want people to find God's love, but they're hungry, so you need to bring food. Right. And, but they don't have education, so you need to build schools. And we understand a lot of times when it's with people who are underserved that you need to meet their basic needs right now. Yeah. And when you're meeting their basic needs and you're doing it of love and kindness and compassion, that, that creates an actual openness mm-hmm. to who God is and who Jesus is. Mm. We don't make that connection in the business world. The reason I wrote MindShift is because I want to help people whether they believe in God or not. I want to help them destroy internal limitations wherever they are in their life. That's beautiful. I want to help them elevate and live out their optimal life. And for me, it is like giving food to someone who's hungry mm-hmm. or building a school to someone who needs education or building a house to someone who has no shelter. I want to give mental frameworks to people who are struggling in their mental space and they need mental health and mental clarity and mental uh, strength and mental agility. And when these principles work, I think it'll create a deeper conversation about how did you get these principles? How did you learn this about us? And I think that's where a person becomes more open to the beauty of who Jesus is. So cool. You're so cool. You're, <laughs> I, I am I'm beyond. I'm really just honored to have you. And yeah, Thank you, Emily. I told my fiance, I said, you know, if I look at my life, and those mentors, those people that just change the game. Erwin, Raphael McManus, it's you. And and the thing I just want to like speak into you right now, because you're constantly speaking into everybody else all the time of all sectors. And you've faced opposition, which is mind-blowing to me because I'm like, he's doing everything out of love. And I see it and I feel it. And it's like, because you're doing it a different way, I want to honor you for being so obedient to the call God has put on your life and showing me and so many others what pure love looks like, like truly. And you're such an artist. And there's that we could do a whole nother show on your artistry. Like we're not, we didn't even talk about his style, by the way, <laughs> or your brain and how it works in, biz, in the business world and all that. But like, Truly, I just want to honor you. Like, and I just, I don't know how much you honor yourself for the work you're doing, but it's, it's made such an impact on not only my life, but millions of people's life. And this book, I'm pumped that they didn't put it in the Christian section. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, 
like, and I know that was a little bit of a fight for you, right? I had to fight for it. Yeah. I heard about that. Like it wasn't just easy to, you know, put it in the the business development section, but I know it's going to get in the right hands of the right people. Mm -hmm. Hey. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Where can people find you? Uh, I think the easiest place is erwinmcmanus.com. You can find out about MindShift. You can find out about our live conference, uh, the Arena Live in LA. Um, you can find out about our mastermind that's online called uh, The Arena. It's a great space. To yes. Join. And uh, uh, we need to get you in there. Yes. And it's a, it's a wonderful space. And, um, and yeah, just go to erwinmcmanus.com. It'll give you access to everything I do. Access to everything. And everyone's always asking me, Emily, what do you read? What do you listen to? Erwin McManus, like I don't consume a lot. You're either consuming or creating, right? But I definitely consume your stuff. And again, thank you for being here and thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much, Emily.